Now I want to start by asking you a question. Does anyone know what this is? Uh, an iPhone. I'll tell you what it is. It's not just an iPhone, okay? It's superseded. In fact, it's not just superseded. This is doubly superseded, okay? Uh, if you haven't heard the news, the new iPhone 5 was released this week, and this is definitely not an iPhone 5, okay? In fact, it's not even an iPhone 4S. This is just your average stock standard run-of-the-mill antique iPhone 4. Uh, now look, it can, it can, uh, you can make phone calls on it. You can send text messages. It can even take pretty average photos, okay? But it's not an iPhone 5. It's superseded. The iPhone 5, it's got a better camera, okay? Better quality pictures can take them a lot faster. Uh, it's got way better connectivity. The iPhone 5 can connect to, to you know, the, all the really fast Wi-Fi network, networks we've got here in Dubbo. Uh, it's got a bigger screen. Yeah, that was a joke. It's got a bigger screen, okay? Four inches instead of three and a half. It's 18% thinner, 20% lighter. Comes in white and silver or black and slate. And look, you can get your hands on one for the bargain price of 800 bucks. But you know what? It'll just be superseded in a couple of months too. And look, this is happening all around us, isn't it? Things are being superseded, being replaced by something else, by something better, newer, thinner, lighter, faster, and it's no surprise for us, is it? It's just part of the world we live in. It's just the way things are. Things get superseded. And so in many ways, today's passage should just make sense to us. We should just get it. Because in the passage that we're looking at this morning, what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus, he supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking. Now Luke helps us to see that by giving us three specific examples, okay? He helps us to see how Jesus supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking about fasting, the old way of thinking about the Sabbath, and the Old Testament way of thinking about God's people. And all the way through this section, we're going to keep bumping up, this, up against this phenomenon where the Pharisees and everyone else who's locked into the Old Testament way of thinking, they keep trying to fit Jesus into their paradigm, into their way of thinking. And he just won't fit. He can't be constrained. He can't be confined within the old way of thinking. He's bigger than that. He supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking. Let's start by having a look together at what Jesus has to say about fasting. And what we'll see here is that Jesus supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking about fasting because the Old Testament way of thinking about fasting, it's all tied up in this idea of sadness or mourning. And Jesus isn't really constrained by that. In fact, in a very real way, he comes and he reverses that because Jesus is the one who's come to make all things new. And so when he's here... It's not a time to fast and mourn. We're in Luke 5 and we'll start from verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now, of course, we're coming in kind of halfway through a conversation here, aren't we? So let's be clear about what's happening. Uh, Anton kind of summarised it for us earlier. You might remember from last week, 
uh, that Jesus is at Levi's house. Levi was a tax collector who'd given up everything to follow Jesus and he invited Jesus home for a meal and now Jesus is there in his house at a banquet and he's eating and feasting and drinking with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And there's also a few Pharisees and teachers of the law hanging around. And it's these guys, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who say to Jesus, look, John's disciples, they often fast and pray. In fact, so do our disciples. But yours, yours just go on eating and drinking. Now, what are they getting at? Well, the implication of their words seems to be that Jesus and his disciples ought to be fasting, right? There seems to be some kind of expectation that this fasting should be a regular thing. But what's the go with it? What's fasting all about? Well, in broad, general terms, there's a lot more we could say about it, but in broad, general terms, the Old Testament presents two aspects to fasting, okay? On the one hand, there's an element where you can fast somehow, in some way, in in an attempt to get God's attention, to carry his favour so that he'll hear you, so he'll listen to you and so help you. Okay, that's one aspect to it. On the other hand, there's an element where you fast, uh, often associated with you know repentance or mourning in response to something bad that's going on, a kind of symbolic act of grief. And I think it's this second aspect of fasting that Jesus is really focusing in on here. So have a look at his response with me. He said to them, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, otherwise known as William and Kate, are currently on a tour of the Pacific as part of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee celebrations. You might have heard of it in the news. Their most recent stopover has been in Malaysia. And it'll probably come as no surprise to you that they were greeted with celebration. They rolled out the red carpet, literally, pulled out all the stops. The British High Commissioner in Malaysia held a Diamond Jubilee tea party. Uh, The King, His Majesty the Agong, held an elaborate banquet in his palace. And that seems good and right, doesn't it? That's what we'd expect. But can you imagine if they turned up there in Malaysia and suddenly everyone went into mourning? Suddenly everyone sat down on the ground and fasted and and wouldn't eat, uh, had frowns on their faces? It'd be weird, right? That just wouldn't be right. When someone special turns up, you celebrate. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. My disciples aren't fasting. Why would they? I'm here and that's the reason to celebrate. Why is that reason to celebrate? Well, because Jesus is the one who's so massive that he can't be constrained by the old way of thinking. He's going to make everything new. He's going to completely supersede the Old Testament way of thinking. Now, Jesus could have stopped there with his answer. He could have stopped there and it would have been a fantastic answer, but he didn't. Did you notice? He adds this extra little bit, and it's really intriguing. Have a look with me. Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Now, what does that mean? Well, it seems as though that in this section, Luke's just giving us 
three little teasers, three little tempters to keep us reading so as to find out how on earth is God going to help his people through Jesus? First, we get this little, this little teaser that Jesus says the bridegroom will be taken away. He's talking about himself, okay? He's saying he'll be taken away. And then the guests will mourn and fast. And then a little later on in chapter 6 and verse 11, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are furious. And they begin to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And then again, a bit later on in verse 16, we're told about one of Jesus' inner 12, this guy called Judas, who became a traitor. And look all the way through here, Luke's just building up this intriguing picture. How is God going to help his people through Jesus? And look, there's really no resolution to it in this particular section, so we'll just have to keep reading the story and see what happens. But I hope you're starting to see by now how massive Jesus is. The Pharisees, they try and fit him into their old way of thinking. They try and fit him into their kind of matrix, but he won't fit. He can't be confined. Have a look back in chapter 5 and verse 36. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new won't match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. Do you see, Jesus, he's not just a patch on the old. He's not some kind of bodgy fix-up job. And nor is he somehow contained neatly within the old, constrained within the old way of thinking. He's way bigger than that. Jesus completely and utterly supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking. Now look, please, please don't hear me saying that the Old Testament is irrelevant to us because that is absolutely untrue. And please don't hear me saying that fasting is wrong or that you should never, ever do it. But it does seem as though what Luke is saying here is that We don't need to fast. We certainly don't need to get God's attention so he'll help us. We've got God's attention. And we don't need to fast and mourn because, you know, God is so deeply aware of our need that he sent his one and only son to help. In Jesus, God has acted decisively to help his people once and for all. And that's a reason to celebrate. Look, friends, I hope you can see that Jesus isn't constrained by this Old Testament way of thinking, particularly about fasting. In fact, in a very real way, he reverses it because he's the one who's coming to make all things new. And when he's come, when he's here, it's not a time to fast and mourn, it's a time to celebrate. Now, in the next chapter, Luke goes on to give us a second example of how Jesus supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking. At this time, in regard to the Sabbath... And look, the presenting issue here, the kind of surface issue, the one that's immediately obvious, is this question of what's lawful on the Sabbath? On the Sabbath, what, what, what things can you do, what things can't you do? But look, perhaps the more important issue, the fundamental issue, I think, is who's got the authority to say what the Sabbath is all about? 
And again, we're going to see that Jesus is not constrained by the old way of thinking. He supersedes the old way of thinking. And he does that first by claiming authority over the Sabbath and then second by illustrating his authority. First by claiming authority over the Sabbath and second by illustrating it. Have a look with me in Luke 6 and verse 1. And as we read, keep an eye out for where Jesus claims to have authority over the Sabbath, okay? One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, did you spot it? It's right at the end there, isn't it? Jesus claims to be Lord. He claims to be master over the Sabbath. He claims to have authority over the Sabbath. Pretty clear statement. But on what grounds? What's the basis for his claim? Well, perhaps by recounting the David story, he's claiming that, you know, like David, he's God's anointed one. And so he's got some kind of special privileges. And maybe that's why he's got authority over the Sabbath. And you know, you know, it could be that. But if it's not that, then what is his basis for claiming to have authority over the Sabbath? Well, let me suggest there's a more straightforward uh, explanation. Let me suggest that Jesus' claim to have authority over the Sabbath is based in the fact that he's the one who best understands the Scriptures. He's the one who best understands and interprets Scripture. He's the one who best understands God's intentions for the Sabbath. That's the obvious reading of the David story, I think. You see, the David story, it's about how the legal requirements of Sabbath observance, they were relaxed in the face of human need, in the face of suffering and hunger, in the face of human need. And so, you know, for David, the strict legal requirements were, were relaxed and it meant he could eat the bread that was strictly only for the priests. And for Jesus and his disciples, the strict requirements of the Sabbath observance were relaxed. It meant they could pluck grain on the Sabbath. And look, the fact that Jesus starts his story by saying to the Pharisees, have you never read? Well, it suggests that in fact, yes, they had read the story before. They know the story, but they hadn't understood its real meaning. You see, in other words, Jesus is highlighting, highlighting sorry, that he's the one. He's the one who understands the significance of the scriptures. He's the one who understands and carries out God's will. He's the one who's been authorised by God to determine what is appropriate on the Sabbath. He's the one who has authority over the Sabbath. But look, far from just leaving it there, we're given a remarkable illustration of his authority. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, that's Jesus, went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. 
So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to him, I ask you, which is lawful to, uh, on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. Now look, there's a couple of interesting things to note in this account. The first one, the obvious one, is Luke makes sure we're in no doubt this is on the Sabbath, okay? That's an important detail. Secondly, there's this other man there. And did you notice how he's described? A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now, I don't know if you know, but roughly 90% of the world's population are right-handed. So let's assume this guy was a right-hander. If that's so, it would have been a massive problem for him, a massive issue, particularly in a subsistence culture, you know, where he's got to provide enough food for him and maybe for his family. would have been a big problem. But, you know, as tragic as this guy's circumstances are, they're hardly life-threatening, are they? Like he's just got a shriveled hand. And so the implication, of course, at least for the Pharisees, is that his healing, well, it could have waited till another day, a day that wasn't the Sabbath, surely. You see, for the Pharisees, Sabbath observance was paramount. It was a symbol, perhaps the symbol of Jewish piety. It was a boundary marker of who was in and who was out of God's people. And so to heal on the Sabbath... Well, that was a last resort, only when it was an absolute matter of life and death. But remember, the real issue here is not what's lawful on the Sabbath, okay? The real issue here is who decides what's lawful on the Sabbath. And unlike the Pharisees, Jesus refuses to use Sabbath observance as a litmus test for faithfulness to God. Much more fundamental to Jesus, much more basic to the Sabbath in his eyes, is God's design to save. In fact, you see, the Sabbath is all caught up in God's design to save. That's what the Sabbath is all about. Way back in Exodus 31, when God's talking to the Israelites, when he's telling them about the Sabbath, this is what he says, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come. And get this bit. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Jesus came to carry out God's will. He clearly demonstrated that he best understood and interpreted the scriptures, and so he claimed to have authority over the Sabbath. But more than that, he gave this profound illustration. On another Sabbath, he looked around at them all. He said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. You see, Jesus supersedes the old way of thinking, far from being an indicator of piety, far from being a boundary marker for who was in and who was out, the Sabbath made provision for human need. The Sabbath was a reminder, a reminder, a physical symbol of God's plans to restore and to save, plans that were enacted by Jesus, 
plans that were fulfilled in Jesus. Well, friends, so far we've thought about fasting and the Sabbath and how Jesus supersedes the old way of thinking about them. And now Luke gives us one more example of how Jesus supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking. And this last one, it's in regards to God's people. Let's pick it up from Luke 6 and verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Have you ever heard of the term manifest destiny? If you haven't, basically it's the doctrine or the belief you know, that God has destined you for greatness, that he's destined you to be successful. A friend of mine at college, he used to think he had manifest destiny on the ping pong table. He was always super confident. He always thought he would win. And he was devastated every time he lost. The history of the United States has largely been shaped by a feeling of manifest destiny as well. You know, this idea that the American people and their institutions and maybe particularly their constitution, uh, they have an inherent virtue. And it's their, uh, sorry, it's their mission to spread these institutions and so redeem the world. And all of this is done because it's their destiny under God. That's manifest destiny. God has destined them for greatness. What about God's people of the Old Testament? Israel, surely they had a sense of manifest destiny. After all, in the Exodus, when God saved them from slavery in Egypt, he said to them, you will be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were the heirs of God's great promises to Abraham, that they would be a great people, as numerous as the stars in the sky that they would inherit the promised land and it would be theirs forever, that they would bring blessings to all the peoples of the earth. It's no wonder they had a sense of manifest destiny, is it? No wonder they started to think, well, you know, maybe it doesn't matter what could happen. We're God's chosen people. Nothing can change that. We'll be right. We're destined to succeed. We're destined for greatness. But look, Jesus supersedes the Old Testament way of thinking. Can you see what he's doing here in Luke? He calls his disciples to himself. He calls his followers to himself. And he chooses how many? Twelve, that's right. Twelve. Does that number ring any bells? God's people of old were represented by the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus is showing that although in the past God's people have in some way been restricted to a particular ethnic group, a particular geographic region, that will be no longer. This is the beginnings of the new people of God, people who will be characterised by having God's word in their hearts, who will be known by their fruit as they hear Jesus' words and put them into practice, people who will be people of faith, people who will love much because they've been forgiven much. Like Anton said, people whose righteousness is not found in obedience to the law, but whose righteousness is found in faith in Jesus the Christ. A new people, God's people, people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Jesus takes the Old Testament way of thinking about God's people 
and he completely upends it and supersedes it. Now, maybe by now you're sitting there thinking, well, whoopee-doo. Like, we're not under the Old Covenant and we don't live in the Old Testament times, so what does it matter that Jesus has superseded the Old Testament way of thinking? What has any of this got to do with me? What difference is it going to make to my life tomorrow? Well, look, at least one area where this is going to touch down in our lives will be in how God's new people are meant to live because, friends, we're part of God's new people as people who trust in Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot of time next week thinking about that because if you look a little bit ahead, immediately after Jesus chooses his 12, he spends a lot of time, the rest of this chapter, teaching them about life as his new people. And a lot of that is going to be directly relevant to us. But we're going to be thinking about that next week. But look, there's another way that this passage touches down into our lives. Hopefully you noticed on the way through, there's this constant tension, this constant wondering, how are people going to respond to Jesus? How are people going to respond to this idea that he supersedes the old way of thinking? Have a look back with me at chapter 5 and verse 39, right at the end of chapter 5. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. Look, Jesus is so massive, so all-important, so central, that, well, he can't be confined, he can't be constrained within the old way of thinking. But look, there will always be people, there will always be people who are just comfortable with the old way of thinking who are just comfortable with their way of thinking. There will always be people who won't accept, who perhaps maybe can't accept a challenge to their their way of thinking, to their worldview. And so look, perhaps the challenge for us is not so much that Jesus has superseded the Old Testament way of thinking, but maybe the more pertinent question for us is, has Jesus superseded your way of thinking? Or are you still trying to fit Jesus into your grid, into your matrix? Are you still trying to fit Jesus into your worldview? Seriously? Are you trying to fit Jesus neatly into your way of thinking? Because he won't fit. Jesus is so massive. He is absolutely central in God's plans. He's so seriously superseded everything else that, well, everything else, it's got to fit around him. And look, this has got to work itself out in at least two ways, okay? It's got to work itself out in our thoughts and it's got to work itself out in our actions, in our lives. So let me ask again, has Jesus superseded your way of thinking? What sort of things do you think about? What things do you yearn for and long for? What are your deepest desires? What gives you joy? You know, I reckon the fact is most of us probably live our everyday lives with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of our utter dependence upon him. I mean, sure, we might make a token effort. Hey, we might read the Bible and pray at the start of the day, but... How often do you go for hour after hour after hour without thinking about God? 
without giving a thought to the wonderful love he's shown us in Jesus. Our thinking has got to be superseded by Jesus. Our thinking has got to be shaped by Jesus. Our thinking has got to be all about Jesus. Right now, our teenagers are sitting up at the Christian school. They're thinking about, for me to live is Christ. They're reading in Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Living is about Christ. Our thinking has got to be shaped by Christ. And what about in your actions? What about in your life? Are you trying to fit Jesus uh, into your way of thinking or are you, are, you, are you actually seriously trying to fit things around Jesus? You know, so many people tell me they're too busy. Too busy to be in a growth group. Too busy to help out at church. Too busy to read the Bible with their spouse. Too busy to pray with their kids. Too busy to come to church. So much of our busyness is just absolute rubbish. We spend so much time trying to fit Jesus into our way of thinking and he won't fit. When we meet together as a church family, we meet together as God's people. The body of Christ. A people redeemed and washed clean by his blood. And when we meet together, we do it to encourage each other, to build each other up, to help each other stay faithful till he comes back. And when we meet together... We do it to give praise and glory and honour to our great God and to his Son, Jesus the Lord, the Christ. And look, seriously, that is the most important thing we can do every week. So let's stop making excuses. Let's stop trying to fit Jesus into our way of thinking. He's way, way too big and way, way too important for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you a bit humbled. Uh, We confess that often we do just try and fit you into our way of thinking. Uh, You know, we put in in place things that we think are important and then we try and fit you around that and we're sorry. Please forgive us. Father, we pray, please change our hearts and our minds. Make us into people who love your Son, the Lord Jesus, deeply from the heart. Please make us into people uh, who have Jesus as the centre of our life and who fit things around him. Father, we want to be people who live for Jesus, who live for your glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.